Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 14 of the Raw Talk podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. To wrap up this month's theme of respiratory medicine, we brought Dr. Felix Ratyan to talk about cystic fibrosis. Dr. Ratyan is the Division Chief of Pediatric Respiratory Medicine at the Hospital for Sick Children, Senior Scientist at the Research Institute in the Department of Physiology and Experimental Medicine, as well as Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. Now that's a tall order to fill for anyone. But after speaking with Felix, it's obvious why he's so good at what he does. In between discussions of exciting new treatments for cystic fibrosis, including personalized therapies, and the impact of his lab's research projects, Felix recounts the unconventional approach that landed him a research fellowship in Boston and shares his secrets for a successful clinical trial. When you're done listening, please show us some love on social media and let us know how we did. Raw Talk could always use some raw feedback. I'd also like to take a moment and show some love to Melissa and Kat for doing an incredible job with promotion. If you haven't already followed us on Twitter and Instagram, you're missing out, but it's not too late. Audiograms and candid photos await you. Enjoy the show. So could you uh, begin by talking a little bit about your personal background growing up in your early education? Yeah, okay, so, so I grew up in, in Germany and was born in Cologne and um, then moved into the Frankfurt area and then subsequently grew up in that area and had no idea what I would do with my future. <laughs> so and then at some point uh, when, when, it, uh, when high school was about to end, I had to make a decision, what would I do with my life? And at that point in time, I thought I would probably like to do psychoanalysis as my, as what I would, as my, preference for the future and I started to go into medicine simply because that was my future career plan. But then I actually enjoyed doing medicine so much and enjoyed the patient contact that I've, I changed gears and uh, it was probably due to the experience that I had doing teaching um, in medical school that I got interested in, in pediatrics and uh, got interested in respiratory medicine and in cystic fibrosis as well. Is there a particular experience you attribute that? You mentioned teaching, but was yeah. there also a mentor? Or? So, 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 yeah, I, I, we had, I, I had very, um, I had, had excellent teachers uh, in, in pediatrics during my training, but then also I was looking for some kind of research project that I would do during my medical training. And, well, initially I thought it should be related to psychoanalysis, then I stumbled upon somebody who, who's actually running a study in cystic fibrosis and they were looking for somebody to, to help out in that and I said well okay I'm, I'm happy to do that and that involved lung function testing and it was actually a randomized control trial which I ended up running as a student which was cool and which I got to present at an international meeting in, in Brighton and I, I can still remember having the last talk in the session and having to wait for four hours and that was quite a scary experience but in the end it was a good experience and then doing this clinical study and uh, and having that contact to patients kind of got me interested in that and then then at that point in time I did some uh, rotations in uh, in other countries including a rotation here at SickKids too and, and I saw CF patients here also um, did go to uh, to New York and uh, other other places, and then decided. And before I actually um, go into residency, I wanted to do a research fellowship, which I did it uh, in in Boston. And that was an interesting experience because I had no I had no direct contact to people there, so I basically 
um, decided one day I would drive to Boston and, and see whether I could find a research project there. So I went into the Children's Hospital in Boston. I said, who's doing respiratory medicine here? And they said, oh, okay, it's Mary Ellen Wall. Does she have time to see me? And so I went up to see her. She spent about two hours with me. At the end of it, we had a research project that I wanted to start, and, and this is how I got started. It's a wow. bit unconventional. It's probably not how it works these days. <laughs> but it actually turned out to be quite, uh, quite an excellent step into, into academic respiratory You medicine. must have had a great impression to get two hours from the first meeting. Yeah, this was, uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened, but it worked out quite nicely. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about what your, what your lab is involved in, some of the research questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I do a lot of um, clinical research in CF, but uh, in CF we have, a, we have a group of people that works very closely together and all the way from people that do CFTR structure, molecular function, uh, to clinical research. And that's actually has been very fruitful in, 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 uh, in building these connections. So personally, my focus is on running clinical trials on uh, new therapies for cystic fibrosis, but also working on new outcome measures that we can utilize in clinical trials, such as uh, new ways of measuring lung function, new way of imaging the lungs, new ways to capture inflammation in the lungs. But there's, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap with, the, with what people do in, in the basic science lab because, as, as I said, we, we have close relationship. And, and we also work together in team grants that we put together. And uh, having this, uh, this possibility to go all the way from the bench to the clinic and sometimes backwards again, Actually, it's very powerful and also convinces people that this is some, something they should fund. Okay, you mentioned that um, one of the first research projects you did was a randomized clinical trial. Mm -hmm. We would like to know, like, how did that actually happen? Because that's, that's very impressive. And what did you learn from that first trial? You mentioned you do a lot of those trials now yeah. that you carry um, from that experience and moving forward. Well, I think what I, what I learned from it is that it's really important that in, in clinical care, we, we have tons of questions that we don't answer. And... Many people just say, okay, we don't really have an answer, so we do what we've always done. And what I've learned from my first clinical trial and from many of the subsequent trials that I've done is you shouldn't stop there. You should, you should say, okay, if we, if we don't have the answer for that, we should find the answer. So, so let's move on and, and, and try to seek, can we just design a study that gives us that answer? And, and in, in most cases, you can actually do it. And, uh, and it's very rewarding if you can do it. And, uh, and you can actually do it early in your career. And it's, it's not just unique to me. When, when I came here, one of my fellows uh, actually did three randomized trials during her fellowships. So I, I helped her with that. But um, she was very successful with that because she had the drive to do so. Uh, we, we, we worked on the ideas together. And in the end, it's actually easier than most people think. So, so, so if you start your first trial, it looks overwhelming in terms of what you need to do. Uh, but once you, you work your way through it, it's actually not so bad. So up until maybe one or two decades ago, the life expectancy for children suffering from cystic fibrosis was very poor. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on how that's changed, how it's improved? Yeah, so, so, so our clinical care has really changed quite a bit because in the past we had lots of patients in the hospital. We also had lots of kids dying in the hospital, which was uh, quite a life-changing experience for me as well. Um, but um, with the better therapies, and most of that is actually due to more of the symptomatic therapies that we do, so better, uh, more aggressive treatment of, of infection and, um, and better ways of clearing the airways for mucus. With that, 
that has really changed. So most of the kids are relatively healthy, and the majority of kids are, are, um, don't have to come to the hospital for, um, for, for therapies. They usually come to our outpatient clinic and, and see us every three months, and, um, and are otherwise well, and many of them are very active in sports, some of them because we, we um, encourage them to do sports. Some of them are actually very good at sports, so, 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 and many of my patients tell me that they're actually outrunning their, their peers in, in their class and, and because they actually train on a regular basis, and, which is actually very interesting because we looked at that Recently, we see that activity in, in, in our CF population over the last 10 years has actually going up, whereas in the overall population activity has somewhat dwindled in right. children. You guys so, are doing a wonderful job then. So, so I think, uh, I think there's, there's certainly some positive uh, aspect of that. But overall, kids are much more healthy uh, than, than they used to be, and, uh, and that's, that's good. But it also comes with some challenges uh, because it makes it more difficult for us to to look at, at treatment response if in somebody who's, who looks pretty healthy and feels pretty well. So, Hey, it's me again, Romina, and this time I'm joined by Jabir. Hey, what's going on, everybody? We're excited to bring to you our first patient perspective segment, and joining us is Jeremy Saunders, who's also a podcaster just like us. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Romina. Thank you, Jabir. As uh, graduate students, we often learn about a condition by reading it online or in textbooks, but very rarely from someone who has the condition firsthand. How do you define cystic fibrosis, and uh, what's your experience with it? Uh, in my own words, I define cystic fibrosis uh, as a fatal genetic disease. Um, I, you know what? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the worst CF patient there is when it comes to like knowing. Uh, about my disease because I, I it's really layman's uh, from what like the the way that I describe it is very layman's and I'm sure that there's probably a doctor out there if they heard me describe CF in my the best way that I possibly could they'd probably step in and go mm, I don't know Jer not sure if that's quite true but um, from from what I understand the the uh, the salt channels within my body are all out of whack and uh, so my body has a hard time moving salt throughout the body, which in turn causes a buildup of mucus or thick fluid throughout the body. Um, and it, because it's my entire body, that affects uh, a mul multiple organs throughout my body, primarily my lungs and, uh, and then secondarily my, my pancreas are the two big ones. So my lungs are constantly filled with mucus, uh, which means I, I have this sort of incessant cough that is always always looming. And, uh, and that mucus, that buildup of fluid, um, opens me up to a host full of different bacteria and uh, illnesses like things like pneumonia or cepatia or uh, staphylococcus. Um, and the list goes on. And then my pancreas, uh, because the, the pancreas is also dealing with that mucus buildup, my pancreas actually doesn't produce enzymes. Uh, which means that when I eat, um, my body doesn't break down food like a normal body would. So I have to take um, uh, oral enzymes every time I eat. I have to take a, a, a host full of vitamins as well to, to gain all the nutrients that I would normally get from the food that I take. And then there's a whole bunch of other really unique, interesting, kind of funny, depending on who you are, uh, uh, little things that go along with the disease as well. And oh, what okay. are some common uh, misconceptions and myths about cystic fibrosis that you sometimes have to check people for that? 
one thing that I've, I hear a lot is, um, is people assume that because it's a lung disease that um, physical illness or sorry, physical um, uh, activity is something that I might want to stay away from. Or people might feel like, oh, oh, you have a, a lung disease. Well, then maybe you should, uh, you should take it easy on this, you know, this exercise or whatever, when really it's quite the opposite. Uh, people with cystic fibrosis are encouraged to, to really kick their butt uh, in terms of being physically active. Um, unlike right. asthma, it's, it's not that my lungs are constricting and making it hard for, to breathe. Again, it's that fluid buildup. So the more I'm huffing and puffing through physical activity, the more, um, the more I'm, I'm actually uh, clearing, clearing those airways. Yeah. So, so that's really, really important for people with cystic fibrosis um, is actually just be like pushed to their limit when it comes to being physically active. Okay. Um, what's a typical day like for you? Do you have a specific um, exercise regimen or diet to help like you were mentioning? Yeah. So, <laughs> so my diet is, uh, it's amazing. It's, the, it's, a high, it's, it's like a high calorie, <laughs> high salt diet. So it's the kind of diet that most people try to stay away from. All the yummy foods. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, it's actually burger week here in Halifax right now. It's like a big fundraiser uh, that they do no for way. Feed Nova Scotia. It's my favorite time of year because burgers all across the city are super cheap and I'm just whacking burgers to me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I don't really gain a single pound from it, which is one of those kind of funny uh, quirks or I guess perks to cystic fibrosis. But yeah, my diet is like as high calorie, like very calorie dense. So as, as high in calories as I can. I'm always trying to figure out ways to add, you know, like cheese and peanut butter and butter um, to everything that I'm eating. Um, and then, of course, salt is really important as well. Mm -hmm. So high salt content because um, the fact that these salt channels throughout my body are all out of whack, I actually tend to lose quite a bit of salt and electrolytes through my sweat, um, more so than, than your average person. So um, I... I add salt to pretty much everything that I'm eating um, and like electrolyte re replenishment to water whenever I'm, I'm being physically active. And in terms of, of being physically active, I actually, um, I practice hot yoga. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually a yoga instructor, which is, has been great for my health. Wow. Um, so I teach at, uh, at Moksha Yoga, which is a, um, it's a franchise of, of yoga studios across Canada and into the United States. Yep, and actually, there's quite a few. There's a few of them in Toronto, and uh, yeah. So I teach. I teach regularly, and I, I have a regular practice of yoga as well. Um, and I'm trying, trying. So I'm I'm trying to have people convince me to give CrossFit a try, because uh, oh. I know <laughs> that it, once I start doing it, it would be great for me and my lungs. But I'm also a bit of a wuss, and the idea of just going in there and and <laughs> working my body that intensely, it just, it's hard for me to get, get my, wrap my head around it. So I'm, I'm working up towards it. So uh, Jeremy, what would you say your quality of life is um, so far with being diagnosed with cystic fibrosis? Like, has that affected? Yeah, it has. I mean, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm really, really lucky. My health has been um, impeccable for, for the majority of my life. I've had you know, there's these valleys and these peaks, and and I've I've gone I've sunk down in, into that valley a couple of times um, through a, a you know a series of, of admittances, um, 
One of the scariest ones was when I was I was a little bit younger, but I went through what's called uh, I'm probably going to butcher the name of it, but in, intestception. Basically, mm-hmm. it's your uh, your part of your intestine starts to fold itself in on itself like a sock, um, mm-hmm. and it it causes similar um, uh, similar symptoms to a bowel obstruction, but if not treated properly, you can you can die from it. It's pretty severe. So that was one thing that really, really messed me up. Um, I, I've been admitted a number of times due to lung infections that have kind of dipped my, uh, my lung function quite a bit. But currently, at 29 years old, uh, my lung function is around the mid-60% range, which is, like, pretty good, right? That's like, you know, I always say it's a, it's a passable grade. Uh, so so <laughs> right. I'm happy with that. Um, but you know, at 29 years old, to be to be where I'm at right now, I feel I feel very lucky, um, right, right? Because I know quite a few people that are, I mean, even younger than me, and have have gone through some much more severe um, symptoms of cystic fibrosis, like full on lung transplants and and so right, on. Yeah. So, um, so I, I try to I'm trying to maintain that uh, as long as I can, obviously, and I feel good right now. I feel I feel really good. Yeah, I mean, when I was listening to your podcast on your um, episode where you're talking about the cystic fibrosis, you mentioned that you you heard that the average lifespan is 30 years old, and you're 29 now, and you know you said you're married, you're a moksha instructor, you're doing all this, you have a cool podcast. That doesn't look like you're slowing down at all, right? Considering you're 29. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that uh, that actually that was a, a pretty. Uh, significant moment in my life. It was around, I was around 10 years old and I had come across a pamphlet that my parents had laying around the house. It was actually a pamphlet for, for my school teachers, for them to get to know what cystic fibrosis was. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, at, at 10 years old, I didn't even know that it was a, a fatal disease. And I read that sentence, cystic fibrosis is a fatal genetic disease. And it went on to say that uh, the life expectancy at that time was 30 years of age. And I think that moment played a pretty key role in uh, in how I've ended up sort of living my life day to day. Uh, I haven't really let cystic fibrosis slow me down. I don't have any plans of of doing that anytime soon. And uh, I'm just trying to like squeeze out the most out of my life as I can. Um, but I mean, I you know who knows? I could live. I could live. Far, I, right now, the you know the average life expectancy uh, in Canada is is 52 years old. Um, okay. uh, I, I believe that's like if that's if you're born today. I could be wrong about that, but I feel like I feel if I keep doing what I'm doing, uh, I will for sure, hopefully, live to see my 40th birthday, which would be pretty cool. But any further than that, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's around the time where I'm ready to kind of check out. Like, <laughs> no, 52, Fair you know. Fair enough. No, I was just going to say, Ramina made a great segue because a lot of the stories that you're telling us right now, you talk about in your podcast, Sick Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you co-host that with two of your best friends, uh, Brian and Taylor. That's Are they right. here with you? No, they're not. Unfortunately, they're they're uh, they're not around. I, I should have told Taylor to come by. Brian's in Florida right now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. No problem. Well, tell them the Raw Talk team says hello. I will. Oh. I will for sure. And we love yeah. what you guys are doing. But um, we love origin stories. 
So could you please tell us, you know, how you got through and decided to make this podcast? What were the idea, initial planning and idea stages for creating Sick Boy? Yeah, so um, it, it all started uh, about a year, uh, just over a year and a half ago. And um, as I was saying, I was a, I'm, a, I'm an actor. I went to school for acting and I was going through this kind of slump in my career where I hadn't been getting much work. And uh, the, film, the film industry here in Halifax was uh, going through some issues in terms of like the government and the film industry. And so things were looking bleak. And uh, I'm a very creative person. And if I, if I don't have that outlet uh, to, to express myself creatively, I, it, it has a pretty profound effect on my mental health. And uh, so I was, a bit of, I was in a bit of a slump. And Brian and Taylor and I, we were having these weekly meetings at the Halifax Central Library where we would just sit down and talk about projects that we thought would be uh, fun to start together. And I said I was sitting on this idea for a podcast. Um, and the idea came to me actually when I was watching Kevin Smith. He's a, he's a pretty well-known cult film director. Uh, he directed things like Jay and Silent Bob, um, Clerks. He did a talk here in Halifax. And he was talking about how, how amazing podcasting is for a creative outlet. All you need is a cell phone and a, and a subject that you're passionate about talking about. And, and if you have those two things, you put them together, guarantee that there's going to be at least one person out there who's going to want to listen. And whether that's one person or 100,000 people, it doesn't really matter because you're creating. And so when I heard that, this kind of light went off in my head. And I was like, well, I love telling stories about living with cystic fibrosis, you know, like finding the humor in that situation. And, uh, I know tons about what it's like to live with an illness. So I can just make a podcast called sick boy and talk about what it's like to be sick. Even before the microphones, you were having these conversations. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I was going to be having them anyway. Right. So, uh, so I said this to the guys, we were at the library and I mentioned this, this exact story and they said, well, the library has a recording studio that we can book out. Why don't we just go in there and, and throw the mics on and, and kind of shoot it on the mics and, and see what comes of it? So we sat down for about uh, an hour. We recorded a little back and forth with the three of us. And we listened back. And that was our first episode. We were, we were shocked at how, how well it came out. Um, and we thought, maybe it was a fluke. Let's get someone else in who's, who's dealing with illness. So... I had uh, my friend, uh, Matt Amiot, uh, who, who just recently passed away, uh, he, he had brain cancer. And I was like, Matt, I know you got, you know, you're dealing with brain cancer. Let's come on in and chat with us. We'll, we'll crack a few jokes and talk about, talk about your illness. And he was like, sure. He came in and it was even better than what we first recorded. And so we thought, oh. I think we're onto something here. And so then we got my friend, Matt, another Matt came in who had diabetes. We talked to him. And then through that, we started having friends telling us that their friend was sick. And so we got them to come in. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And before we even released anything, uh, I had written a blog post. We created a website. And I put this blog post up to say, hey, everybody, this is what we're doing. Uh, maybe you'd be interested in listening. We're probably going to release episodes in the next few months. And that blog post our website went from having zero hits on it the day we opened it to 10,000 the next day. Um, and that blog post kind of went semi-viral. And that's when we realized, oh, 
we we we're tapping into something that people are really hungry for. So mm -hmm. if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, let's let's commit and let's really do it. One of the challenges is patients who are not responsive to drugs. How do you decide or what's the window of opportunity when you say, okay, this patient will respond well to this drug and it won't respond well, and what's the course of action afterwards? Yeah, and this is again where the clinical trials come in because for us to predict what a patient will do in the future is very difficult. So, so if, if, if I see a patient today in the clinic and they're stable and then I put them on the drug and look at, 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 at their clinical status four weeks later, and there's no response. I, I'm, I'm not sure how to interpret that because it, mean, it could mean that if I, if I didn't use that drug therapy, the patient may actually have deteriorated in that time period. So, so it's always difficult to, to put this into context with the natural course. But so, so often what we do, if we, if we consider a, a treatment in the clinic, we, we do a certain trial period. And then if we are not sure about it, we extend this trial period because one of the measures that we also looked at is, look at is the number of pulmonary exacerbations that children have, which is important for their lung function decline over time. But it's not easy, and, and therefore, in many cases, we just have to say, okay, let's, let's do a clinical trial to really figure out whether, whether a given intervention does the job or not. So given that cystic fibrosis is kind of a multi-system disease, I imagine you seek out collaboration a lot. So whom have you collaborated with as far as individuals, but also as far as uh, types of specialists? Yeah, so it is a multi-organ disease, and so we run combined clinics with gastroenterology because it affects the gut. Uh, we run combined clinics with endocrinology because it, uh, diabetes is one of the complications uh, in patients with cystic fibrosis. And it's interesting because Peter Dury, who's, who's a, who's, who was a gastroenterologist who recently retired from this institution, always said, he, I'm not a gastroenterologist, I'm a CF doctor, which means that you actually take care of, of the whole patient and not just, uh, just a given organ system. And, and that's, an, that's an important uh, approach. And similar to what I said about uh, how we approach patients in terms of working together between basic scientists and clinical researchers, we also do that for on the clinical side, and we say, okay, let's look at the patients as a, as a whole, and then um, try to address all of these issues rather than just focusing on the, in, on the organ of our interest, um, because that's not really being fair to the patient and, and 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 giving the best care that we can. Many years that you've worked in the field, have there been any unexpected complications arising from these patients? You mentioned it's a multi-system disease. Um, yeah, so, the, so there have been some unexpected um, complications. One of them is, so we use a lot of pancreatic enzymes because the pancreas is, is dysfunctional, and so the exocrine pancreas. Are, so the way you do this is you, you extract pancreatic enzymes from, usually from pork um, pancreas, and then you, you use these extracts in, in the form of tablets to, to supplement them. But then at some point, uh, about uh, 15 years ago, we, we saw some complications of, of uh, fibrosing uh, colonopathy, where the colon actually uh, developed scars in patients that received very high doses of these enzymes. And that was something that was completely unexpected because everybody always considered enzymes to be super safe because it's just enzymes, right? So the body produces them and, and you're just supplementing what's not available. But uh, sometimes you learn that you, you have to be a bit more cautious about that. Then we learned that we have to uh, use them in a certain range of dose, and then it's not going to be uh, an issue. But uh, you, you see these kind of, of complications, and that's important that we learn from them and then do a better job in the future. 
I think that the experiences uh, that we tend to remember best are those that are emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. and, and in your case, maybe it was the discovery of the CFTR gene. Do you remember where you were and, and in what context you were kind of in your research when, when this discovery came out in the mid-80s? Yeah, so I was actually um, a resident in, in general um, pediatric training in, in Germany when that happened, but I saw a lot of CF patients uh, on, on the wards at that point in time. And I was already involved in CF research uh, as well. So what, what was really exciting was uh, the amount of hope that generated in, in, in patients and families because um, before that it was very unclear of, of how we could actually tackle this problem in a more systematic way and actually move forward. I mean, the expectation at that point in time that we would find this solution relatively quickly, but uh, yeah, that's, that's typically the case that is not that easy. But it was very, um, it was really a moment of hope in, in a situation where many patients and family felt despair on a, on a day-to-day -day basis because they were not doing so well. Hey everyone, it's Romina here, and on this edition of Classics, we highlight a groundbreaking paper published in the Journal of Science in 1989, led by Dr. Lapchi Choi and his team at the Hospital of Sick Children in Toronto. This paper garnered a lot of attention as Dr. Lapchi Choi and his team made what is described as the most significant breakthrough in human genetics in 50 years. They were the first to discover the genetic code for the protein involved in cystic fibrosis. Deletion of only one amino acid was strongly correlated with cystic fibrosis. Approximately 70% of the 214 patients studied had this deletion of one amino acid in the protein coded for by the cystic fibrosis gene. This mutation was not present in 198 individuals who did not have the disease, suggesting that this mutation is in fact the cause of cystic fibrosis. The other 30% of cystic fibrosis patients had various changes in DNA and the molecular defects of these changes were not yet understood at the time. However, since this paper was published, the discovery of this mutation, along with other defects in patient DNA, has allowed us to more accurately diagnose this disease prenatally as well as lead to the development of improved treatment for this patient population. That's all for me. Now back to the episode. So what challenges remain in your research, but also in cystic fibrosis research as a whole, and how do you hope to address them? Yeah, and so how do you think the field is going to address it? So, so there are lots and lots of challenges, but that also uh, makes it exciting because, uh, on the other hand, we, are, we, are, we have been moving forward quite uh, nicely, and, and what we see is every year that the outcome of patients is improving, and that's really stimulating. So I think one of the challenges that we have is that we find... Um, um, therapy that addresses the basic defect that works in every patient and not just a few patients and not that it works better in some patients and not so well in others. I think we'll get there in the future because the drug pipeline now is actually quite, quite strong. And one of the reasons it's strong is actually because the first drug companies that went into the field did actually make some money with that, which initially nobody thought because it's a small patient population and everybody felt, well, this is not gonna, gonna be helpful. But then people understand that if you, if you do something in CF and it works, it may actually also be helpful in other genetic diseases because 
Uh, the way genetic defects work is, is that there's, uh, the mechanisms are, are often common uh, amongst diseases. And, and therefore, if you find a disease, uh, something that works in CF, it can actually be translated to other diseases. So I think that we have quite a strong pipeline now from new, new drugs. And if we, if we um, find ways of, of being able to, to find the best combination for each patient, and I think we need, we need this individualized approach that um, I talked about earlier, if we, if we do that, I, I think we, we, can, we can find a solution to um, control the disease, hopefully, in every patient as we move forward. Some patients will be much more challenging. There are some patients that have, great, have, 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 have large deletions in their genes, and of course, that's not easy to tackle because a small molecule therapy will not do the job, but there are other approaches. So, so I think what we've learned in, in, in CF research, we cannot put all all our eggs into one basket. We have to think about many different ways that we uh, organize our research in parallel. And, but as, as we do that, and since there are so many people around the globe working together to do that, and we all feel that we are part of a, of a large community, I think we'll, 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 we will meet this challenge. And uh, we were speaking a little bit about the sh or before the show that uh, you were mentioning that there might be some evolutionary advantage to the genes or the mutations that also confer the, the disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so, so that certainly has always puzzled people because why would you have a, a genetic defect um, uh, in the population uh, in a relatively high frequency if, uh, if this is actually associated with lower life expectancy if you, if you develop the disease? So there must be some kind of advantage to that. And so, so the initial thoughts that if you have, uh, because uh, CFTR is important for secretion of fluids in the gut, that if you have a secretory diarrhea such as cholera, uh, that your prognosis might be, might be better if you have CFTR dysfunction and, um, and have carry one copy of that gene and, and therefore develop less secretory diarrhea. Um, the problem with that is, is that the areas in the world where cholera is more prevalent are not really the uh, the areas where, where we find cystic fibrosis. So the match was not perfect. But then we learned over time by, from the work that people did in Boston and other places that CFTR is also important for uptake of bacteria, so for internalization of bacteria into cells. And for some, some bacteria, going into the cells and then being transported in the bloodstream is, is one way how septicemia develops. And, and uh, salmonella infections are a typical example for that. So the concept that's probably most likely explain, explaining it is that uh, if you have uh, CFTR dysfunction, you're less likely to have uh, systemic salmonella infection. And therefore, in some of these epidemics, those, those subjects may have had a, have a survival advantage. It's interesting that Mother Nature pre presents uh, some solutions to certain uh, health and population problems that we then, in a modern society, have to solve because then they present their own problems. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. And you guys have a great dynamic, too. Yeah. Helps, I guess, yeah. being best yeah. friends. Yeah, well, I, that, was, that was the thing, is that, like, like I was saying, like, we, we sit down, drink beers, and do this anyway. Uh, you know, we, we have a... <laughs> we have a very... Uh, we're very close, the three of us. Uh, we love harping on each other. Uh, we love, you know, like making fun of each other uh, and kind of digging at each other. But we also love giving each other the space to share. And we also love um, being very vulnerable and very open with one another. And so I think the, the culmination of all those things together and then on top of that kind of zeroing in on a very specific topic allows for us to have some pretty, um, pretty interesting conversations. 
uh, at least I feel like it's interesting. I, I like to listen back and it's, it's fun. It's fun to do it with them. So to know that there's, you know, so many people across Canada and into the United States that, um, across the world really that also feel the same way is it's, it's really beautiful. It's a, it's a good feeling. No, for sure. Yeah, I was telling Romina before you were getting on that listening to the episodes in your dynamic, I'm thinking, I got a group of close friends. Yeah. Who am I more like? Am I more like Jeremy? Am I more like yeah. Ryan? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> because, like, because the banter is there, but you yeah, guys also talk about some real things. Yeah, and it's relatable. I think that that's the thing is that I, I think that's another thing that people really enjoy is that they – they see they see an element of what we are doing on the mics in their own life because everybody has those one or two friends where like when you get together it's it's just the conversation is just magical every single time right? right so that's how it feels when we're together and then we just happen to record it so you know that's i think like that's that's i think that's the biggest message here is that everybody should be doing this it's so much fun <laughs> and it's such a perfect creative outlet uh, but yeah, we love it. And um, I'm not sure if you you get this from your listeners, but when I started listening, so I started off with the teaser and the first episode with the <clears throat> cystic fibrosis, the second episode with Matt. Then I scrolled up all the way to the top and and just started reading the titles because I was yeah. like, oh, this is this is sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I started reading the titles, and then I stumbled upon the episode with. The definition of sick boy, and you mentioned Matt had passed away, mm. and that was a heavy, mo- heavy moment for me because I was like, "Wow." Speaking from experiments, like you know, if you lose someone that's really close to you, a lot of the times the vivid, the memories are not so vivid. Mm. But the thing is, you forget the voice. You know, you yeah. start to forget what they sound like. Yeah. So having an episode where you pay tribute to you know your guest, your friend. And then the family gets to hear it, all their friends get to hear it. Yeah. And it's that voice again. And I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah. then I scrolled down, then I saw you had one for um, Andrew. That's right. You had one for Leighton. Leighton like, as well. Yeah. So I had to listen to those episodes first. And yeah. And I went back from the. And it's yeah, amazing. It's... So it, was it always, I mean, I imagine it's not always a plan. But <laughs> at what point did you decide, you know what, we have to give tribute to these our guests and also friends because they've changed the course of our lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it really is this, uh, this incredibly beautiful thing to have. It's, it is, it really is a treasure to be able to, to go back and, and have a, a one hour long conversation that you'll, you'll, you'll never lose even when that person is gone. And, uh, when Andrew Henderson passed away, he was our first guest that actually um, passed away from his illness. Uh, he had he had cancer as well, and we were in Toronto. Um, oh, sorry, no, we were in Vancouver um, recording a batch of episodes, and we found out on the way to CBC we were going to be doing an interview uh, on on CBC Television in Vancouver, and. On our way to the interview, we found out that Andrew had passed away, and the three of us were in the back of the Uber, and we just, you know, sitting there and, and processing that. Uh, one of us, one of us, just piped up and said, "Look, we we gotta, we have to re-release Andrew's episode, and we have to do it today." 
like in memory of Andrew, this is what we're doing. And so we made that decision. We put it up. And then, of course, uh, very soon after that, Leighton passed away. And it was the same thing. It was like, all right, well, let's put it up, like in memory of Leighton. Because I think the reason why is because, I mean, we wanted to pay tribute and we wanted to pay respect. But we also recognize that there's, like probably you, Jabir, there's a lot of people that are going to come on to this podcast late into the game. And maybe they hadn't gone back. Maybe they hadn't gotten to know Andrew. Maybe they hadn't gotten to know Leighton or Matt. But they should. They should get to know those people because those people play a massive role in, in helping build this community that we've built. And so if they don't take the time to go back and listen, then here's our opportunity to, to kind of put it forward to everyone to be like, hey, listen, this person has changed our lives and this person will change your life. So take a moment to listen. And then on top of that, it's just, you know, it's just something, I think something really special for other friends and family that, that, you know, lost someone so close to them to have that, that, again, that treasure of being able to go back and listen to, listen to their, their, their family member or their friend that has passed away, but in, in their, to hear them really in their true selves and having a really good time and oftentimes with like filled with a lot of laughter. And uh, I know from our, my experience in listening to those episodes when I'm, you know, grieving, it's, it's, a, it's really helpful and a really beautiful tool to kind of help you through that process. So I think that, I think now it's like, if that happens again, and th- this is, this is it, we're in the business of, of talking to people who are dying, you know, and not that, I mean, every single person you talk to in your life is, is dying. We're all dying. Right. So it's, it's inevitable that these people that we talk to are going to meet their end and some will come sooner than others. And hell, I might pass away before, before we feel like this project is done. And, and so every single time it happens, I want, uh, I want to be able to just replay that conversation for the people who might have missed out in the beginning or for the mm-hmm. people that were there from the beginning to, to just go back and really pick out some of the important things that they may have said. Mm. Because listening back to Matt's, just to come to Matt for one second, going back and listening to his episode, right, the second episode we ever put out, and hearing him talk about some of the topics that he brought up after he passed away really made things kind of hammer home for me in terms of like thinking about my mortality and, and accepting my mortality. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's a really no. interesting thing. It's, it's, it's a beautiful it's, thing you guys are doing. Right? It, yeah. yeah. I saw that and sure. I was like, Oh my goodness. This mm-hmm. is, this is a big thing. This is real. And I'm yeah. sure everyone's appreciated. Yeah. So what's yeah. next for, uh, for sick boy, 2017. Yeah, we're coming up to 100 episodes. I don't even know what we're going to do for our 100th. We haven't even talked about that. We should probably figure that out. I mean, I don't know. We could do something really special or we could just be like, eh, it's it's just like any other episode. Um, But uh, we're we're actually, right now we're kind of hammering down plans for a cross-Canada tour. Uh, So we want to go coast to coast, uh, Halifax to Tofino. And hear the stories from the people that live across the across the country, and and um, 
share their stories and, and build this community that we've started because it's, uh, it's not only entertaining for us, uh, but it's also really, um, it's been a really big emotional, mental, I mean, even physical like support system for us. And, and a lot of our listeners are, are, are in, in on that with us. And so we want to just kind of build that community from coast to coast. So, uh, we're, we're going to be doing the tour in the, the fall, the fall of 2017. So that's a big, nice. that's our big kind of planning, planning session from here all the way till there. I think you guys Stop need a hotline. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I wish I had the time for that. <laughs> yeah. 1-800-SICK-BOY. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> one of you guys. Uh, that'll that's be our, awesome. new, our, our next new t-shirt we'll put out 1-800-SICK-BOY I like that that's sick <laughs> mm-hmm. alright I think um, that's wrapping up uh, this segment thanks so yeah. much Romina do you have anything no, else you want to ask? no just thank you so much just thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, joining us on the show hey thank you Romina thank you Jabir this is great do you have any last comments? Uh, no if you're, if you're not familiar with it go check out SICKBOY uh, you can find us at SICKBOYPODCAST.COM uh, and if you're looking to support our project, uh, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash sickboy. So you can go over there and there's a whole bunch of perks and yeah, just tune in and, and engage with us. We want to hear from people. And if you're someone who's listening and you want to be on the podcast, uh, get at us, hit us up, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever works for you. Thank you. Back to the podcast. Another topic, a research interest. I'm going to save the embarrassment trying to pronounce it, but it's HHT. Could you talk about how that interest sprung up? Okay, so yeah, so, so HHT is a bit of a tongue twister because it's hemorrhagic, uh, uh, hereditary hemorrhagic teleangiectasia. So basically, those patients develop <laughs> um, angiomas, uh, so, so AVMs in uh, arterial venous malformations in tissues. Um, one of the tissues is the nose, so they develop nosebleeds, but which that is uh, usually that you can handle, but then they develop AVMs in, in the lung. This is how I got interested in it, okay, okay. but also in, in, uh, in the liver and the brain. And so when I came to Toronto here, that there were quite a group of patients uh, with HHT and nobody really wanted to take care of, of that clinic. I said, well, I, I'll do it. And if I do it, I might as well try to develop some concepts of how we diagnose and follow those patients. And since it's relatively rare. Um, there, there weren't a lot of clinics around the world that were doing this for children. So, so we developed some concepts of, of, of how we diagnose and follow these patients and, and published on that. And it's actually been quite, quite a nice area of research. And one of, the, one of the niceties is if you work in a rare disease is that you build something immune. And, and uh, uh, while people can argue with you, that they don't necessarily can... Um, have other data to, to convince you that, uh, that their approach might be better because um, you first have to organize the clinic in a way that you do. And, and most of my colleagues that I tell I do an HHT clinic say, say you do what? Because they have two or three or four or five patients. We have almost 200 patients now here in Toronto. And it's actually a good example how you can take a rare disease and do some rare disease research. And I'd always encourage people to do that. And an institution like SickKids is ideally suited for that because we see a lot of rare diseases. And it's not so difficult to do that because you don't, you don't need a lot of fancy tools. You just need a concept 
a structured approach to uh, follow these patients, and then, then you can create some interesting data. You're building the hypotheses to begin with, exactly, and then creating. Yeah. So what would you tell um, someone who's entering the field of pediatrics, specifically experimental medicine, how would you guide them? What, what kind of advice would you give them? Difficult problems, what to keep in mind, what to be excited for? Well, I think in the end, uh, if, you, if you want to enter a research career, you will always, you should, you should not do it because you're building a career. You should do it because of interest, because you actually want to solve a specific problem that, that gets you going. So, and I cannot uh, recommend people which field they should pick and what, uh, because in the end, it's whatever turns you on is, is, is the right thing to do. I just feel that, to, um, I mean, a lot of people think about this strategically and say, okay, I have to do this degree and then the next degree. And I say, forget about these degrees. In the end, it's not important. It's more about what you do rather than what kind of title you have, because in the end nobody cares about this and it's not going to drive you personally. What drives you personally is that you pursue a certain interest that gets you out of bed in the morning and gets you excited every day. Do we have a final question? I, I think that was, that got me excited. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm inspired. <laughs> Get it, got me inspired. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, and I think that brings us to the end. Is there a, a resource or a website where people can find you and your work? Yeah, so, so I'm, um, I, I should be accessible on the SickKids website. I'm also on the Research Institute website for Physiology and Experimental Medicine. should be easy to, to find my name. Excellent. We'll be looking forward to your future work. Okay, thank, thank you. you so okay, much. Thank you so much. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Forget about these degrees. In the end, it's not important. It's more about what you do rather than what kind of title you have.